It's the 23rd of April, 2021. This is a Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, kids on rituximab, more IL-17 inhibitors, and it may be that the telephone could be your best clinical outcome tool. First, let's start with a report about lupus and death. Happy subject, of course. This is from the most recent journal of rheumatology, a study out of British Columbia where they have a cohort of over 6,000 lupus patients followed for almost 17 years. In this time, 451 deaths. When they calculated the all-cause mortality against the general population in BC, they found lupus patients had almost a two-fold higher risk of death. That number, the SMR number, is about right from most studies out there. They're ranging about 1.5 to 2.0. This one was 1.85. In this study, however, there were more deaths from renal disease, a three-fold higher risk if you had renal disease, infection, a 2.7-fold higher risk, and then cardiovascular disease, a two-fold higher risk. What's interesting thing about that is that years ago, renal disease was the leading cause of death. But advances in therapy, more aggressive therapy, has led to that sliding down quite a bit and being overtaken by infection and cardiovascular disease. Why this shows up in Canada uh, in this cohort is not known, other than it's a 17-year cohort. And so there's probably some large carryover for what was going on back in the, in the 90s. So interesting study. Thank you, uh, BC researchers. Um, We don't talk much about fibromyalgia on uh, these podcasts, and maybe we should. Uh, I found an interesting study from a pain journal that was a diary study of 79 fibromyalgia patients, 86 RA patients, and 33 who had both. I suspect that the number of people who have both fibromyalgia and RA is actually larger than we probably realize. But in this study, they tried to get a two-week estimate of how their disease was affecting them. Um, And basically, when they compared fibromyalgia patients to RA patients, they showed that fibromyalgia had a very low uh, sense of well-being, much worse on all the scales that they used. They had a very negative affect. They were more isolated. They were less able to complete their plans in life. And overall, if fibromyalgia was viewed as having a stigma that was negative, and such patients had lower uh, well-being. Um, this is what we're up against when you treat fibromyalgia. It's a tremendous uh, thing to overcome. Well, I've always said that when you're seeing patients, you should always give them three things. Um, hope, goals, and rules. It's very hard to give hope to people who don't have a lot of hope. But then again, that is your job. That is the hard job of managing fibromyalgia. An interesting study out of JAMA Internal Medicine has got nothing to do with rheumatology, um, but maybe everything to do with rheumatology. So DOACs, you know, these um, antiplatelet therapies, uh, Xarelto, Eliquis, etc., often used for AFib and venous thromboembolic events. This particular study looked at patients who are on DOACs who inadvertently or without explanation were also taking low-dose aspirin. They found that up to a third of their patients in this large cohort were also on aspirin without an indication for aspirin. Yet the downside here was, one, being on additional aspirin did not 
give you a lower risk of future thromboembolic events. But being on aspirin did increase your risk of bleeding. And it was about a 20% increased risk of bleeding. The good news is it wasn't major bleeds. Major bleeds were not increased. It was non-major bleeds. Don't ask me what the difference there is, but it sounds kind of important. Again, this is a study of over 3,000 patients from JAMA Internal Medicine. Uh, a nice study comes out about spacing DMARDs from clinical rheumatology in what's called the BioPure study. This was a cohort of AS, RA, and PSA patients who were in remission, not on steroids, for greater than six months, and they were invited to enroll in pro the, this project called BioPure, where they were going to space out their DMARDs. Interesting. It's what seems to happen in a lot of places. I'm totally against this, by the way. Um, they, uh, the flare rates for joints uh, was 13% for RA, 20% for spondylitis, and 21% for psoriatic arthritis. Not a lot of difference, but overall, there were more flares with psoriatic disease because not only did they have joint flares, they also had five more skin flares. So overall, psoriatic patients were less likely to endure the spacing and take less drug and were more likely to have flares of their disease largely by largely driven by the added component of skin flares on top of their joint flares. Don't be spacing out therapies. It's a bad idea. Patients just don't generally do well. I know they want to do it, but it's your job to manage their disease optimally. Speaking of optimal management, Osteoporosis International has a nice report about multi-joint osteonecrosis. We do know that osteonecrosis is dependent on steroids and chronic steroid use. Uh, and there are no other factors. In this uh, cohort study of 55 patients with three or more sites of osteonecrosis, the patients were likely to have the following diagnosis. Lupus, almost 30%. Um, ALL, leukemia. Um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, 11%. HIV, 9%. 4% alcohol. So those are the diseases upon which they had their AVN and their multiple AVNs. Steroids were a big factor. Those who had been on a total cumulative dose of greater than five, 30 grams over five years had a higher risk of this multi-joint osteonecrosis. Overall, they calculated for every thousand milligrams of steroid, you had a 3.2% increased risk of multi-joint osteonecrosis. And then that, that risk was, boom, up significantly if you had a secondary risk factor such that if you're on steroids and you have a secondary risk factor, it is now a 12-fold increased risk. So we do see this. I know I see a lot of osteonecrosis in patients on dermatomyositis uh, early on when taking high-dose steroids. That's a worrisome group to me. Steroids uh, and, and lupus, we would certainly expect. Uh, an article about pediatric rheumatology patients, pediatric patients taking rituximab comes from the Journals of Allergy and Clinical Room, uh, Immunology, a study of 207 patients who were taking rituximab, and basically uh, rituximab is being used for rheum rheumatic causes, cancer, renal disease. 40% of them develop uh, hypogammaglobulinemia post-rituximab. We reported that in the past. Um, that is seen not at a 40% number. It's much higher here in these kids. But like we've seen, it, we've seen in adults, that developing hypo-IgG, hypogammaglobulinemia, not IgM, was associated with an increased risk of infection. So hypo-IgG was um, found in 29% prior to rituximab, but 42%, 43% after. 
IG, I'm sorry, that's IgG, yes. IgM levels also change pre and post, but it was the hypo-IgG that gave a two to three-fold higher risk of serious infections. There's a few reports this week on uh, IL-17 inhibitors. We have two approved in dermatology and rheumatology, but yet there's a third one that's out there that's approved for psoriasis, but not psoriatic arthritis uh, and, or spondylitis, and that's berdalumab. Berdalumab, as you remember, was first developed by Angen. Early studies looked very good. They aborted it in phase three because of a, a high signal for depression, but they were asking a lot of questions about depression in the trial, so they kind of enriched it. So it was the Achilles heel of this drug. It was taken up by another company. Trials completed. Drug gets approved. It's called Silic. It's on the market, S-I-L-I-Q, um, and it's approved for sorry plaque psoriasis. They did a study in, uh, of this IL-17A in uh, monoclonal antibody in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis, I should say, and they showed that it was effective um, and with numbers that would approach um, what we saw with other drugs enough to maybe get this drug approved. So you may be seeing yet another IL-17 inhibitor on the market within the arthritis space. This study was done for axial spondyloarthritis. There was a preliminary report, uh, actually it's a, more or less of a press release, that came from, um, boy, I can't remember the, the company, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it's an early, it's, it was in Lancet uh, just this past week. The name of the drug, this is a nanobody. Uh, nanobodies are not fab fragments, but they're part of a fab fragment, and they're um, uh, just as specific uh, this nanobody against IL-17A and IL-17F is called senelokimab or sonolokimab. Doesn't matter, does it? It's brand new. This is early phase two. Multiple doses against placebo and against secukinumab. And much better than placebo, equal to roughly what was seen with secukinumab. Side effect profiles were as you might expect. There was one case of new Crohn's disease, but there was a difference between the um, this nanobody IL-17 and secukinumab. The risk of developing candida infections was 1.9% with secukinumab, but on this drug, it was 17.4%. Oops, that could be a game changer right there. Look for further studies or maybe not further studies with this particular compound. There was a nice study done in osteoarthritis of the knee um, that looked at web-based inter interventions versus web-based interventions, meaning education, coupled with text reminders about how to do exercise, when to do exercise. 206 patients with knee OA, a 24-week study showed that the patients who got the additional text messaging to manage their OA and to remind them to do their exercise did significantly better Pain scores were significantly improved in 72% if you received text messaging versus only 42% if you just received access to the internet and internet-based um, exercise programs. Maybe reminders by the phone. I mean, heck, we live with our phone. We go to bed with our phone. Why not let our phone be our next best pill? Arthritis Research and Therapy reports on the use of the Remicade or infliximab biosimilar called CTP13. In this country, it's marketed as a few drugs, including Inflectra. 
in other countries in the EU, this is now being given not just as an IV for all the usual indications that Remicade has, but it's now available and approved by the EU and EMA to be used as a subcutaneously administered uh, biosimilar of infliximab. The same has happened in Canada. This particular report in ART looked at a, a, a combined analysis showing that in if you combine the two RCTs that are out there against Remicade, the sub-Q, CTP13, had greater improvements in DAS scores, CDI scores, and SDI response rates. Why would that be? Is that bio-better rather than biosimilar? We will not see subcutaneous inflectra in, in the United States because it's not going to the rules are such that it would have to be um, a whole new drug development program because our rules say that the drug has to be given exactly as it is approved for in its already approved version. So this would have to be in the United States an IV formulation, which is what we have. You want to go sub Q? That's a totally different NDA. I don't think it's going to see it. We're going to see it in the United States. Um, I know you read the the lung literature as I do. The Annals of, of the American Thoracic Society uh, has a nice report from Ted Mickles and the other VA uh, collaborators that looked at the VA RA patients, 89% of whom were males, um, and they looked at the ability of serologies to predict future development of rheumatoid uh, lung, or RAILD. Turns out, if you were dual positive for RF, NCCP, in strong, in strong titers, by the way, that you had a significantly higher risk of developing, a threefold higher risk of developing um, RAILD. So, and it turns out that amongst the two antibodies, there's probably more ILD in RA with rheumatoid factor than there is with CCP. It's a little bit unexpected. There's probably a good biologic reason that has not gone to in that paper, but I think that's interesting. Again, RA and lung disease go hand in hand. They're bad co-conspirators here. Um, another report uh, was seen in Arthritis Care and uh, Research, the ANR um, Companion Journal, showing that there's an increased risk of COPD in preclinical RA that happened to be aquapositive. So this is a, a nurse's health study from, as you know, many, many multi-thousands of, of, of nurses, they found uh, amongst them 283 who met the definition of having preclinical RA, meaning this was years before they developed RA, and they studied them in their preclinical years against a matched population of 842 women. Um, they basically showed that if you were ACPA positive, and 21% of them were at their inception, that a high percentage of these people went on to develop COPD. So being ACPA positive gave you basically a threefold risk of developing COPD, another chronic lung disease that has been associated with RA, has been associated with poor outcomes in RA. Um, again, I think you should be watching carefully this association between RA and lung disease. It's bad news bears if that happens. Our last report comes from Gelfan and colleagues from the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looking at the toxicity of methotrexate-induced liver disease in patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. The data comes from um, Danish cohorts of 5,600 psoriasis patients, 
6,500 psoriatic arthritis patients compared to 28,000 are A patients, and they found overall patients with psoriasis had the highest rate of liver disease. They looked at four different kinds of liver disease, mild liver disease, severe liver disease, moderate severe liver disease, those with cirrhosis, etc. But when they did all their adjustments, that psoriasis had a 1.6 to 3.4 fold increased uh, risk of liver disease. And that was higher than what was seen in psoriatic arthritis where the risk was 1.3 to 1.6 fold higher than that seen in RA. Bottom line here is we all do monitoring for methotrexate, but should we be doing it differently for the psoriatic patients? These data and what we also know from past studies would suggest, yes, we should, that we should really rigidly hold to ACR guidelines where if you have half of your um, LFT assessments being showing, I'm sorry, your half of your lab showing elevated LFTs uh, in patients on methotrexate, you need to be bailing on methotrexate or lowering methotrexate or finding another alternative because toxicity is much higher with psoriatic disease. That's it for this week on the podcast. Go to our website. You can find these citations and more. You can read them to your family over the dinner table. I'm sure they would love to hear about it. You can also find our backtalk feature on the email and also on the website where you can record your case and question that we will feature on future episodes of the podcast. Hope all of you are well. Be sure to watch in the next six or seven Tuesdays, Tuesday Night Rheumatology, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central Time. We're going to do uh, reprise highlight lectures from Room Now Live 2021. Next week um, features RA, advanced therapies um, from room, from uh, for RA uh, by Dr. Roy Fleischman. Um, uh, Dr. Alan Matsumoto is going to talk about ULAR and ACR treatment guidelines. And Dr. Maya Butch from Leeds in England is going to talk about um, her definition and management of difficult RA. It's a great session. We'll have Q&A at the end. Artie Cavanaugh and I will be on hand to take your questions. We'll see you next week. We'll see you at TNR. Bye.